your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 10, and uh, hopefully, not hopefully, but the Lord is always with us when we preach the Word, because He's the one that gets the credit and the glory and the honor for that. Thanks for bearing with me. It's a busy week here at Centerpoint next week. By the way, um, my wife is coming next week, and since you all made fun of me, can, can we, do you have that picture that, so if you're coming next week... To our Christmas party, you can dress like my wife. Um, I caught her in her pajamas last night, and uh, she said that you can come dress like that next week, huh? Is that okay, honey? See, isn't that nice? So, hey, no, don't show the picture of me in, in my jammies. We, we got to keep it rated PG here. So, um, next week is a family Christmas fellowship party. It's not service at 10.30, it's service at what time? 10. 10, which means if you can plan on 9.30, maybe you'll be here by 10, which would be awesome, but we have a little lure for you, we're going to feed you, it's going to be a brunch, this whole place is going to be set up as a uh, dining hall, tables and chairs, and it's going to be just like family Christmas in your dining room, but better, because we won't be throwing food at each other and getting angry, it'll be awesome, so... We're going to one service next week, starting for the whole year of 2020, uh, and I'll allude to that more in my message as to why we're doing that, but next week is the first service uh, at 10 o'clock, so both the 8.30 and the 10.30 will be combined into one service, and next week it's a big Christmas party, uh, it's fellowship, it's food, it's fun and games, uh, I'll certainly be sharing a little bit of a, of a word of encouragement from my heart, uh, but please don't miss next Sunday at 10 o'clock, you can come dressed in your jammies if you want, you can dress up however you want to dress, just keep it PG, right? And uh, then we'll all be good. So take your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 10. We've been in a series talking about taking back your faith from the American dream. And uh, in this series, we're, it, it's been a very challenging message on helping us in the body of Christ to understand what it means to be a more a fully devoted follower of Jesus, not just to, to go to church and to be a religious person. Uh, and the, the church in America today is filled with people who go to church on Sunday, once a week, but their lifestyle of followership does not look like what the Bible says we as followers of Jesus should look like. And so it's not necessarily a popular message for people who are looking for an, an easy street gospel message. It's in your face. It's really what Jesus says if you want to follow me. He says, great, pick up your cross and die with me. That's not popular because we want all of us to be more comfortable. We want more easy street living, but the reality is um, that's not what Christ says a lifestyle of followership is all about. By the way, I have to allude to this because my wife and I are in the same boat. I met the Andersons their first time here today, and, uh, and I, I never embarrassed guests the first time, but <laughs> you, you, know, you guys, like the first thing they said to me, obviously I had to look up, I said, hi. And I think maybe it's because the way I greeted them, they said, oh, don't worry, we are the tallest couple in America. The tallest married couple, it's true, in America. And so my wife and I are very similar, the, the same thing, tall height. So welcome, guys. Glad to have you here. Welcome them, would you? It's great to have all of our guests. And I, I never single out guests, but, you know, you guys just seem like good sports, so... Um, 
So the lifestyle of followership, Matthew chapter 20, this, this chapter 10, it's a radical concept that we're learning. And this morning I want to talk to you about the radical reward. It's a life of dying, but there's also a radical reward. And this is uh, the final part, really, in an eight-part series that we've been on. But in two weeks, on the 22nd of December, uh, I'm going to be giving you some real practical steps that we as a church are going to take in going through this entire book over the next year. And I want to really encourage everyone to get on board with that. Um, But in Matthew chapter 10, we're looking at the... 12 apostles, we're looking at the disciples, and Jesus clearly states that his followers are commissioned to radical lives that will look foolish to people of the world. The the lifestyle that we're called to live, the rest of the world will look at, and they will basically say, according to the world's standards, that lifestyle looks foolish, it looks crazy, it looks and appears to be risky, but God's people are called to endure risky lives for the sake of an eternal reward. I'll never forget about 15 years ago when my wife and I were at that time living in Denver, Colorado, and felt the Lord had called us to leave where we were living and to step out in faith in a very radical way. And it was, you know, we had been serving the Lord, we were in a church. I've been serving the Lord for many years as a pastor. We've been in ministry for 26 years now, uh, and at that time, a long time as well. But the Lord told us to do something, told me to do something uh, that was pretty risky, and that was leave the comforts of my job, my home, my established career, all of that, and to step out in faith and to just trust Him. And it was kind of like, that's what you're told to do, Craig. Just leave and trust me. And that, okay, that's nice, God, but how am I going to pay the bills and take care of my family? And do that? Oh, just trust me. Uh, and I didn't know any of those answers, but the, the call was just step out in faith and trust me. It's the scariest thing I've ever done in my life, and it was the riskiest thing. And it was the hardest thing to do when, uh, when I began to, to seek counsel and guidance from godly Christian counsel. The Bible says to do that, right? Seek counsel from others. So I prayed about it. I felt the Lord calling me to do something, and then I sought counsel. And do you know that uh, sometimes that confused things even more? Because even my Christian friends said, that's crazy, that's stupid, you can't do that. Thanks, guys. Hey, appreciate the help. Here here we go. Um, But in all seriousness, sometimes that happens in your walk with Christ. And even some Christian friends might give you counsel and advice that they say, you're crazy. You're stupid. You can't do that. And... In, in our carnal way of thinking, because I don't care how spiritual you are, you're still human. And so when people that you love and respect and who are godly people say to you, you're crazy, what does that cause you to do? Think you're crazy, right? Okay, maybe I am crazy. And doubt sets in and then fear sets in and then you start to wonder, is that really God I'm hearing from or is that just the bad pepperoni pizza I had last night? You know, all kinds of things go in your mind. And the truth is, again, no matter how spiritual you are, it really presses you into where you have to do some real soul searching and seeking the face of God. And so it was a journey for my wife and I and our whole family, but we stepped out and we risked everything. And the, the, uh, 
And I don't say that as a pat on my back because that's just, that was a growing time, a stretching time for me. But it's not just a one-time deal that that happens in my life or yours. It's a process of God taking you deeper and you learning on the journey to say, you know what, Lord, I'm willing to follow you. And he says, okay, great, Craig, it's going to cost you everything. And you say, really, everything? He says, yes, everything. <laughs> and then you have to step out. And it's scary. But he has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, of power, and of a sound mind that comes from knowing the promises of God in his word. So that's the journey that we're on. And Matthew 10 begins with a section of the gospel that gives instructions concerning the missionary work of Jesus' disciples. And the instructions are given by Jesus directly to the 12, and they apply directly to the work that they were supposed to be undertaking uh, within Israel. And much of the teaching concerns the coming work and the ongoing mission of the church. The mission of the church is the mission of Jesus. That's the mission that we're called to. And they share the, they share the same mission, Jesus and the church. And, and they'll also share the same trials, the same difficulties, the same demands and the same sacrifices that were in the early church and the early disciples' charge as well as ours. Jesus was preparing his disciples for the persecution that they would experience. And even so, they still had to understand there was absolutely nothing more important than following Christ wherever He would lead them. And that same thing remains true today. Nothing is more important in your life than following Jesus wherever He leads you. So what does that look like? Where is he leading you and how to understand that? So the, this passage really affirms that Jesus is God and Savior. He's teacher. He's the master. We are the students and servants. And we share with him in his sufferings, the Bible says. But also, we share with him in his great reward. Aren't you thankful that there's a great reward? A greater reward than what this earth has to offer? You know, A greater reward than any material gift you'll receive on this Christmas day. This, you know, some people criticize me. You're not supposed to have baby Jesus in the manger before Christmas. Well, to me, the whole season is about celebrating the greatest gift of all, right? It's the gift of Jesus, the birth of our Savior. And so this is really what we're talking about. So we're going to discover this morning what is becoming uh, like Christ look like. And we've been talking about this for eight weeks now. So here's some questions to consider for you. How, how have you suffered for your faith? And what circumstances or relationships have grown hostile or accusatory or just not pleasant in your life as a result of following Jesus? I'm sure that you can probably think of a few. Uh, and and so you might wonder, well, why is that? Because I thought when I gave my life to Jesus and I followed Him and I made Him the Lord that, you know, I wouldn't have all these problems and all these difficulties. And That's not true at all. It's not what the Bible says. He says, if you want to follow me, great. You're going to suffer persecution, so get ready. And even today, I had a conversation with a man leaving church. He's like, you know, I just, I'm just not sure how I feel about all that. That whole following Jesus and if you do that, then you're going to suffer persecution. You know, what's the deal with all that? It's not... It's not necessarily what I understood growing up as a kid following Jesus was supposed to be all about. And so that's where America's kind of gotten off kilter a little bit. We want to kind of give you a nice, soft, easy, comfy message that makes you feel good and tickles your ears and pats you on the back and says, okay, go away now, live your life and just be happy. But you see, that's not really what the true gospel says. But there's a reward. 
It's an eternal reward. It's a great reward. And there is abundant life here and now. It doesn't mean we won't go through persecution. And, and I'm not saying either that we, we should seek conflict or we should seek danger in our lives. But when we're truly following Jesus, um, danger and conflict is just a part of the journey. Hello? Anybody been following Jesus a little while? Can you relate to that? It's part of the journey. It's part of the journey. People that say, oh, you know, you're judgmental. You're one of those religious. You're a Christian. but you're, You just think you're better than us. And you think you're better than me. And, you know, how, you know, because of how you live your life, people say things like that. They criticize you. People lie about you. People will try to do what they can to defame your character. It's true. <laughs> it happens. It's all part of following Jesus. And those things can, in your flesh and your carnal understanding, they can make you angry. They hurt, right? Although when I say if we are going to follow Christ and we have to die with Christ so dead people shouldn't hurt, you know, it's, it's easy to say, right? A dead man doesn't feel any pain. And that's the battle that we go through, right? The battle of the flesh and the spirit. And it's like, all right, well, if, if I'm supposed to be dead to myself and to my way of living, then those bad words and negative comments and lies about me shouldn't hurt. But our natural response is to want to retaliate, isn't it? Our natural response is to want to, to, to get even or to set the record straight or to defend our own name or to vindicate ourselves, and to go out and say, oh, no, what he's saying about it, what she said about it. We want to, but you know what? What I've learned is that Christ will be your absolute best vindicator. You live your right life right before Christ. He'll vindicate you. He'll take care of you. You don't have to fight your battles. We sing about it, right? We worship, we say all those things, but when it comes down to it, when the rubber meets the road and something's going on, what does our flesh want to do? We bristle up and we want to go do, we want to take care of business on our own. And part of dying to self is saying, you know what, Lord, I lay down those feelings before you and I trust you to fight my battles for me. That's part of the cost of following, but sometimes it causes us to be frightened or fearful. Um, and what role, does, what role does that play in your devotion to Christ? Should you not be... And fear is, you know, we, we sometimes fear more what people... What are people going to think about me? What are people going to say about me? What about my reputation? That's the fear of man. We're more concerned with what men think about us and what men say about us than we are with God. What God thinks and says about me. Because we have a reputation to uphold, Right? This is all part of the journey of followership, folks, right? It's all that stuff that goes on emotionally. So what or who are you most at risk of loving more than Christ? That's what we're going to talk about today. What or who are you most at risk at loving more than Christ alone? And do you believe that you can follow Him without following Him into risky situations? So the questions that we're looking at today is, have I truly died to myself or am I attempting to uh, lead this Christian lifestyle without truly following Jesus, with, without actually following Him with my lifestyle? And I guess what I mean by that is, again, it doesn't, being a disciple of Jesus, you're not a, you're not a follower of Jesus just because you come to church on Sunday morning. It's a lifestyle, uh, no more so than the chair you're sitting in as a follower of Christ, right? You, it's, it, you have to make 
actionable choices with your lifestyle and how you live your life. So let's get into the word this morning. Matthew chapter 10. Let's start at verse 24. The first point I want to share with you this morning is that following Christ means fully identifying with Christ. Following Christ means fully identifying with Christ. Matthew says in verse 24, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? And some, sometimes we read things like that and we say, what in the world does that mean? Let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us understand. Lord, I pray that the next few minutes these passages of Scripture will become more alive to us in our spirits than they ever have. They would not just be words on a page but they would come alive in our spirit as to the challenge that you are giving us through your Holy Spirit to follow you and to love you above and beyond and more than anything else this world has to offer. I pray that you'd speak to each and every man and woman and young person in this room. God, by your Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts and transform our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 2, Jesus is teaching... Uh, that a student is not above his teacher, and a servant is not above his master. He's making it clear that his disciples should expect to suffer persecution, just as he was persecuted, and just as he was insulted. There's an insult right here in Scripture that we, we kind of read right over. We don't really understand what it means. But Jesus is making it clear that you'll, you should expect persecution. Jesus uses three earthly terms here in this passage of Scripture to help us understand what relationships are all about. He uses the realistic expectations, realistic expectations of what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus. He uses the term teacher and disciple or teacher and learner, master and servant, pretty clear. One's the master, one's the servant. These are relationships we understand. Head of household and household understanding there's a head and the insult here in the in the word Beelzebub it comes from a Hebrew meaning term and it means Lord of the flies Lord of the flies not the movie but this is what it means in the Greek in, in the New Testament it's recognized to mean the prince of demons and as Satan himself the prince of demons and as Satan himself so those who sought to discredit Jesus were associating the head of the household of God with the head of the household of demons. What an insult, right? This is the, this is the, the criticism. You think you've been well, criticized. So was Jesus. So will we be. You're like the house of demons, the household of demons. Jesus was treated in such a manner that we should also expect to be treated and sometimes even worse. People call you names. People say bad things about you. People lie. Say things that are not true. You and me, followers of Christ, should expect the same treatment from the world. Knowing that Jesus was hated, he was rejected, he was mocked, he was ridiculed. These are all the things that Jesus went through. He was misunderstood. So will you and I be, just like Jesus went through it, right? Well, it doesn't feel good, and I don't like it. Well, it's part of the cost of following Jesus. 
Well, those are things that are, that are hard to, to swallow, right? But this is what it means to, to follow Christ means to fully identify with Christ. He went through these things. We're going to go through these things. Number two, God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty enables radical living instead of fearful living. Radical living instead of fearful living. The, the idea of facing persecution would certainly not be a welcome one among the disciples. And, and fear would be the natural reaction. Look at, look at what it says uh, in these next few passages, 26 through 31. So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I did, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. So again, Jesus is, is teaching us just as he endured persecution, so will his, his disciples. However, you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid of persecution. You don't live in fear of that. Even if persecutors sought to discredit him and to spread lies about them, him, their ministry, the truth would eventually be revealed. I love the fact that in the end, the truth is going to be revealed, right? The cream always rises to the top type of deal. Nothing will remain hidden forever. Well, I've got to get out there and I've got to, and I've felt this way and I've thought this. Well, I've got to let people know that that's not true. What someone said about me is not, that's not, you know what? The truth will be revealed eventually. I don't need to live in fear of that. So if the truth is going to ultimately be revealed, then Jesus' followers, you and I, should devote ourselves to just proclaiming in the present the truth of Jesus, regardless of what risk might be involved. And I know that Sometimes we want to go through life kind of as an undercover Christian because if people hear that we're Christians and they'll know our political views and then if they know those and they're going to assume that they know those, then it's going to cause dissension and going to cause division and going to cause conflict and I'm just going to slip by quietly and subtly and just kind of keep my mouth and my convictions to myself because we have a fear of what others think or say about us. But there's a risk involved with following Jesus, right? A risk of losing friends. Might even be a risk of losing a job. Uh, and again, I'm not saying that we go out seeking conflict or seeking, you know, turmoil. But if you're following Jesus, it will find you. In a sense, the, Jesus, uh, the disciples would have more of a public ministry than Jesus had. Remember, he was only here three years. Bada bing, bada bang. You know, he came in, did his thing, and off and on he went. But he told them things, he told his disciples things in private that they didn't even understand until after the resurrection, keep in mind. But they were to teach them fully and publicly and to trust him as he said, go and to proclaim my good news. Look at verse 28, and he says it again. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So the worst thing anyone could do in persecuting a follower of Jesus, the worst thing doesn't compare to the worst thing that God can do, right? Satan, 
possesses great power. Satan certainly does possess great power. I'm not denying that. But God alone is the one who can bring final destruction of a soul and a body in hell. That's the end right there. It's God alone can do that. So, you know, the other thing that I think sometimes we get wrong is when, when we've been persecuted, you know, persecutors, call them haters, whatever you want to call them in this world, um, we tend to want them sometimes to know, well, if I get a hold of them or if they, if, if I... Every single person will stand in judgment before God someday and they will give an account of their lives. So the people who have done you wrong and are doing you wrong right now and are being hateful and nasty, they'll stand before God someday. Especially as they're doing it because of your faith or they're judging you for whatever reason. Understand that, that you'll stand before God alone and I will stand before God and your haters will stand before God someday. Well, I want to make them pay now. I want them to know now. Right? Isn't that kind of how we feel in our flesh, though? I want people to, to understand you should fear God much more than you should fear man. Let's, let's move on to the next um, verse 29, I believe. And not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, again, it says it again, fear not, therefore, you are, more, you are of more value than many sparrows. So if God is sovereign, that not even a bird, not even a sparrow falls from the sky apart from his will, apart from God allowing that to happen, then we should, he should be fully trusted to be sovereign in our lives as his followers. That God takes care of the birds of the air, the lilies of the field. How much more will he take care of his children who are created in his image? Understand that he is a sovereign and loving father. He cares about, and it's, he's not just, his sovereignty is not just limited to life or death matters. His sovereignty says in this passage, he cares about every detail, even the hairs on your head are numbered. And I know it's not a lot for me, but <laughs> what that tells you is that he cares about every detail of your life. If he cares about every detail of your life, and people say this to me all the time, well, pastor, I, you know, I got this situation I'm going through, I just want to talk to you about it. Well, have you prayed about that? Well, no, I, I'm not going to pray about that. It's too small, and it's, it's, just a, it's not really that big of a deal, and I don't want to bother God with this little stuff. Excuse me. God created the heavens and the earth in six days. He rested on the seventh. He put the stars in their orbit and the planets all around. He did all of this and all these great and incredible things, yet he cares about a bird. Do you not think that he can handle the details of your life? Do you not think that he cares about the details? He's intimately and intricately concerned with every detail of your life. He cares that a situation is hurting you. He cares that this is bothering you, that you're struggling with whatever. He cares about that. He's a loving father, more loving than any earthly father you could ever understand. 
And he also is intricately involved with the big deals in your life. There's not one thing that's too small or too great for your heavenly father. He loves you. He cares about you. This is the radical reward of following Jesus, that you're not in it alone. That he cares about what you're going through. That he's there for you. That he's a, he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. I could go on, but I want to move on through this. And I want to help you to understand that there are three times in this passage that he says, don't fear anything in this world. And we, we live oftentimes in fear. And what I mean by getting back to fear about what people think about us, we are... We're in this cage so often, this prison of being concerned about what do the people think and say and what they've done and making sure that justice is served. Believe me, justice will be served ultimately. It's not up to you or to me. We're not the judge and the jury. We're here to love God and love people. That's what he's called us to do. That's, that's the mission, right? Love God and love others. Well, they hurt me. Well, I get it. You don't have an option. Continue to love, right? As his followers, we can be confident in God's care and provision as the most valued part of his creation, humans, us. He cares. He cares for the nature, the birds. He cares for you. In this uh, point here, the author of the book that we uh, took the context of the sermon out of, Radical, um, he talks about uh, God's sovereignty allows radical living, not fearful living, but he, he, he kind of critiques this common theology or pop theology of, um, of the, the, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. And what if we begin to look at the design of God as the most dangerous place to be? Because sometimes it is. Oftentimes, most of the times. What if the center of God's will in reality is the most unsafe place for us to be? And I, I get that because if we look at John chapter 10, verse 11, this is what Jesus said. And I can imagine the disciples' face when Jesus said this. He said, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Now, if you know anything about sheep and you know anything about wolves, you know that there's a stark contrast, right? I had an opportunity to read in this book, uh, we're going through the men's, went through the journey, and I read a book called The Good Shepherd, and I learned a lot about sheep that I didn't know, but sheep are among the dumbest animals that there are. I'm not trying to be funny, it's just true. They, they are dumb, um, they, are, they don't really have much, of, of all domesticated animals, they, they don't have much sense of, and they don't have any defense mechanisms. Even a, even a harmless noise can spook a sheep and they can run like crazy into a frenzy. And the worst part of that is they're slow too. So they can run, but they're not going to get away from their uh, attacker, from the predator. So they, f they have no defense mechanisms. And as a result, the dumbest thing a sheep can do would be to wander into a herd of wolves. But that's the illustration that Jesus gave his disciples. He, he's not even wander there. He said, I'm sending you out. Now, shepherd understands sheep and they understand goats in this, or, or uh, wolves in this time. And these men are thinking, what, what is Jesus trying to say? Why in the world would Jesus, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, tell his sheep, go hang out with the wolves? When you understand that picture and that analogy, you got to be thinking, really? What, are you trying to kill us? 
What's, what is the deal? He was saying to his disciples then, and he's, by implication, you and I now, followers of Jesus, right? I'm sending you to dangerous places where you'll find yourself in the middle of evil, vicious, unkind people, and you'll be there by my design. That's my plan. And to that you say, oh, great, thanks, Lord. Jesus told them, go to great danger and let it be said of you what people would say of a sheep wandering into the middle of a wolf pack. They're crazy. They're clueless. They have no idea what kind of danger they're facing. This is what it means to be my disciple. Sound a little bit like the world you live in? We don't think like this, though. We say things like, oh, the safest place is in the center of God's will. We think if it's dangerous, then probably God's not in it. If it's risky, probably, you know, that's not, if it's going to cost me, if it's, if it's costly, well, then it's, it's, it must not be God's will. Well, the reality is, what if those factors are actually the, the criteria by which we determine something is God's will? Right? Well. What if we begin to look at the design of God as the most dangerous option before us? What if the center of God's will in reality is the most unsafe place for us to be? There's a story about a missionary in uh, Indonesia. This missionary couple went to the Batak tribe in Sumatra in Indonesia. And this particular missionary couple felt called to go to this tribe. And this tribe was 100% Muslim. And they were Christian missionaries, born-again missionaries from, from America. Knowing there was certainly going to be danger, they still went to this tribe to tell them about Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. The gospel message that you and I understand and know. They knew it would be dangerous, but they went anyway. As they began to share their message, this missionary couple was murdered. They were killed in front of the village, and they were cannibalized. Um, pretty horrific end to their missionary journey. You know, that's where God's called you. God will certainly protect you. Go do it. Well, that's where God called them, but that's where their lives ended. Not a very pleasant story, is it? Several years later, another missionary couple felt called to the same tribe, the Batak tribe in Indonesia. And they knew the stories had traveled around what happened to this missionary couple, that they were murdered and cannibalized in this village. And they decided to go anyway. Second missionary couple. You and I would say, well, that's stupid. Right? That doesn't make sense. You know it's dangerous. You know that they're clearly not open to the gospel message. So why would, why would you go? Because God called them to go. So they went. I'm sure they went with a lot of fear and trepidation, but with a lot of prayer and saying, you know, in spite of, you know, those fears, we know that, that God is in us and he hasn't given us that spirit of fear. Fear is taking something seriously, but power, love, a sound mind, we're going to go. They went there, they began to present the gospel message and immediately the tribal leaders recognized it as the same message the last missionary couple was bringing. But this time... The tribal leaders said, we're going to listen because it's kind of ironic and strange and odd that these people are saying the same thing the last people said. Let's just give a listen and see what happens. Well, the guy telling this story was a part of the Batak tribe, and he was saved and gave his life to Jesus. He was born again through that second missionary couple, 
And today, over 3 million Muslims have been saved through the Batak tribe. 3 million. Because one couple, praise the Lord, that's good news, right? But one couple. And, and that, you know, this, this is a reason why I started reading this book and I kept putting it down. Because I read stories like this and, and I have to question and I say to myself, would I be willing to go with my wife to that tribe? Would I? Would you? For the, you know, follow the first missionary couple? Would I be willing to be the first missionary couple? Because if the first missionary couple didn't go, it wouldn't have paved the way for the second missionary couple. So the, the, the moral of that story is that they listened, they believed, and they were converted to Christ. But would I be willing to be murdered and cannibalized so that those who come after me would see people come to Jesus. I didn't see the reward. That, that first couple didn't get to see the reward, not here on this earth. So those are the kind of questions in this passage in Matthew 10 that, that, that are posed for each of us. Are we willing, as the first disciples were, to go into danger and possibly even to die in order that those that come behind us might experience the fruit of our sacrifice? Those are tough questions. What if such sacrifice is exactly what it will take for many of the unreached people in the world who are presently hostile to the gospel to one day surrender their hearts to Jesus? You know, there's people in America now that are very hostile to the gospel. So one of the reasons I feel God's calling our church together over this next year is because we have to come together in, in unity and in one accord. We have to band together as a band of brothers and believers because I believe the battles are going to intensify in, in the church of America for those who really want to stand for what the true gospel is. And so it's important that we are unified, that we are together in one accord. And as two churches or two services, we've kind of become a little distant. But understand, this is something that we're not just doing to make it easier for volunteers and servers. And it's been a lot on people, yes. But really, our focus is we're going to come together and be strengthened as a body, as a church. Because the battles that are coming are going to begin to intensify, I believe. So what if the sacrifice is exactly what it would take for people to hear that message? Number three... And I'll move on here. A radical life is spent in devotion to a heavenly father or heavenly home. Uh, so, verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. So, though spoken directly to his disciples, the promise of Jesus extends <clears throat> to all of his, his followers. An integral part. An integral part of being his disciple is acknowledging him publicly. That's why we do water baptisms here once a month. Too. It's an outward expression of an inward change. It's publicly acknowledging. It's identifying with Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection under the water, coming up out of the water. It's publicly acknowledging I'm not ashamed of Jesus and I want the world to know. If you've not been baptized in water, I would encourage you to do so. And if you've not done so because you're afraid of or you're ashamed of or you don't want to, then you need to understand that we have got to publicly acknowledge according to this passage. To consistently disassociate with him is basically to say, I'm not ready to follow Jesus or I'm not a true follower of Jesus. 
It's disowning him. Verse 20, uh, 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I know we sing that in our Christmas carol, right? But he says here, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Talks about this in the scripture. Christ brings division. <laughs> For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. What in the world does all of that mean, right? And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. There was an expectation among many Jews that the promised Messiah would be a political leader overseeing a period of renewed peace and prosperity. Jesus proved to be someone other than what had been expected. He didn't come as what was expected. In fact, he made it clear that living according to his mission could result and would likely result in division. Since so many would reject him, they would reject also his followers. They rejected Jesus, then they rejected his followers. You and I, right? This rejection would cause division even amongst closest relationships, even amongst family ties. Jesus speaks of two absolutes, and it's critical that we get this as a body of Christ. The two absolutes with no middle ground a person either confesses Christ as Lord and Savior or denies. Those are the absolutes. Well, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I, you know, I kind of not, you know, I, but I don't really believe the Bible says about this or that. You either confess him or you deny him with your lifestyle. And that affects your eternal relationship with God. That affects your eternal reward that we're talking about. If a person does not, this is what he's saying here, if a person does not love his heavenly home and his heavenly father more than his earthly home and even family members, then he will not, he's not following Christ. That has to be our objective. That has to be our focus. Heaven and Jesus, because this world and everything in it is just temporary. It doesn't last forever. It's only your place that you're passing through. Earth is practice for heaven. That's all it is. And you're only here 80, 90, if you're lucky, years, right? And then you go to eternity, either in heaven or hell. And you've got to live with heaven and your heavenly Father as your absolute greatest priority. And you've got to love Him. And you've got to acknowledge that heaven is my home more than earth is my home. And then that can help you deal with the realities of the pain that you deal with here on earth, the hurt, the rejection, the betrayal, the persecution, the haters, the whatever. You can begin to say, you know what, that's okay, it's temporary. It's going to pass by, and my eternal home in heaven that I'm getting ready for, where my eternal reward is, is there. So he's saying in this passage, no, certainly you have to love your family members. I'm not saying you don't love your, your family members, of course, He's not saying don't love them, but you cannot love them and this earth and this world more than you love Jesus. Do you understand that? All right, number four, wrapping up. Eternal reward is worth earthly sacrifice. Eternal reward is worth earthly sacrifice. Matthew 10, 37 through 39, whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And, who, and you've all read this before. Many of you have. And many of us say, well, okay, that certainly doesn't mean what it really is saying. So let's just move on. What does it really mean? Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. 
Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Certainly, again, we're called to love our family members. We're even called to love our enemies, right? We're called to love people on this, this earth. But he, a disciple of Jesus, must love Jesus above and beyond and more than anyone or anything else. Jesus demands his followers to die to themselves, die to your own desires, die to your own plans. Now, I'm certain it would have been shocking for, for his disciples to hear Jesus speak of following him required carrying a cross, but it would have certainly um, held a new meaning after his death and after his crucifixion to all those who had heard this teaching. So the call to discipleship is definitely serious and it's costly and it's not for nothing. Jesus promised He promised that those who gave up everything, including their own life, would ultimately gain everything for him. What does that look like for you and I? The cross was an instrument of public humiliation. And it was about suffering, about death, of people who were rebelling against established authority and the social order. That's what it was all about. But understand that anyone... Even now, you and I, anyone, and this is my last slide, I think. If you just want to throw that up there, I'm going to close with this. Anyone seeking to live for himself will be lost spiritually. But anyone surrendering his life completely to Christ will find abundant and eternal life. And that's a process. It doesn't just happen because you want it to happen. It happens because you're intentional about saying, like Jim Elliott said, the great missionary, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. To give his life away, to gain what he can't lose. Eternal reward, eternal life, abundant life. So in conclusion this morning, church, we've got to decide where our allegiance lies. Either we are all in or we're not in at all. It can't be halfway. And this is the message that's not popular. Well, what are you saying, Pastor? What? I don't know what God's saying to you, but I know what His Word says, and you need to find out what that looks like in your day-to-day life. What's God calling you to take a risk for? What does it look like? And I can tell you, there's no greater way to live your life than to say, I'm all in for you, Jesus. I'll risk everything for the sake of your call in my life. It doesn't mean you're going to lose your family and your kids. and your. Fr- it doesn't mean that. In fact, just the opposite. The eternal reward. But are you willing to say, Jesus, I love you more than anything else? It's a sacrificial road. It's, it's marked with lots of risky lifestyle choices. The choice that we made together as a couple 15 years ago was one of the stupidest yet one of the best decisions I made. Stupid in the world's eyes. You know, it doesn't make sense. You shouldn't do that. That's not a smart decision, Craig. It's not smart career-wise, otherwise, financial-wise. Nothing made any earthly sense at all about the decision I made other than it was what Jesus told us to do, and we had to step out in faith and say, okay, God, we'll trust you completely. Like, you're the provider, not me. Like, okay, I'm leaving my job, God, and I don't know where we're going to, and you, I guess you got to figure that out. Yeah, scary. But nothing in the world is of, of greater value than eternal reward for those who become like their master. Would you bow your head and close your eyes for a moment?
Following Jesus is not easy, and our world is hostile towards Jesus during His time on earth, and, and our world has continued its hostility towards His followers ever since. Hostile to you and I today, disciples of Jesus should expect to face trials and persecution. We should expect it. But following Him requires sacrifice and complete abandonment of your own selfish desires and purposes. We even risk division amongst those that are closest to us. And I know some people say, well, what, what does that mean for me, Pastor? You know, break it down and what does it look like in my life? That's the, that's the joy of following is saying, all right, Lord, what are you calling me to? And what does that look like for my life? And just like I have, have to find out and continue to have to be open to, it's different for me than it is for you. The Word is the Word and it's His truth, but the Holy Spirit will speak to you in His own sovereign, special, unique, quiet way. So I don't want you to leave here thinking, oh, well, pastor did this, so I got to do that. No, God will speak to you. And you don't need a priest to hear from the Father. You go directly to God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. You have direct access to the very throne of God because of Jesus and because of the cross of Calvary. You don't need a mediator. And I'm not trying to step on anyone else's religious background or upbringing, but please understand that you hear from God directly from your for yourself in your heart. You don't need me to tell you. Certainly seek godly counsel and advice, but seek the face of God, church. And if you want to know what God's asking of you, ask Him. And it can be a really simple prayer like this. Jesus, I want to serve you with everything that I've got, with all that I am. I want to give it all to you, and I want to discover what it means and what it looks like to be a true follower of Jesus. Make that your daily prayer in your own words. Just make it your daily prayer. And you know what? He'll show you. He'll show you. He'll speak to you. And he promises, as you completely surrender to me and give it all, you can fully trust in me that the reward is great. It's radical. So are you willing to follow him regardless of whatever might come? Are you willing to follow him? That's a, that's a question you've got to answer. All right. You can, uh, Pastor Zach, would you come? We're going to close in prayer. As Pastor Zach's coming, I want to roll this quick video because this is what next week's about. It's about fellowship and about unity and about together.